Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that's Christmassier than a pile of mince pies covered in brandy butter. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and welcome back. And I am absolutely thrilled today to be talking to Gil Kennan, who is the co-writer and director of the new Christmas movie called A Boy Called Christmas. That's the name of the movie. I'm not just getting confused about what's involved. So this film is based on Matt Haig's 2015 book of the same name, also A Boy Called Christmas. And it follows Nicholas, played by Henry Lawful, who lived long ago in Finland at a time when nobody knew about Christmas. Now, some of you still struggling with your Christmas shopping may be wishing you too lived in that time, but things were tough. Poor little Nicholas had only a carved turnip to play with and uh, barely any food in the pot. But one day, after a request by his king, played by Jim Broadbent, to find magic for the kingdom, Nicholas goes off in search of just that in the fabled village of Elfhelm. Now, that might sound a little bit cutesy, but stick with us, because unlike the book, the film has a modern-day framing device with Maggie Smith reading this story. She's the eccentric great-aunt of three small, very cute, bereaved children living in modern-day North London. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Gil, but otherwise this is a spoiler-free chat about a film that I was surprised to find as charming and as fun and as funny as it is. I should say it has an incredible cast around Henry Lawful. You've got Kristen Wiig, Michael Hisman, Jim Broadbent, Toby Jones, Sally Hawkins, and of course, Maggie Bloody Smith. So it's really, really well put together. But we get into a little bit of that uh, in this interview, so I hope you enjoy it. And A Boy Called Christmas is out now on Sky Cinema and in cinemas around the country. So here's Gil. Please enjoy. Okay, so obviously this is a Christmas movies podcast. So well done. Happy Christmas. How are you feeling? Thank you so much. Particularly Christmassy at this moment. I was really hoping to get some uh, fake snow falling during the podcast, <laughs> but I couldn't get the rig up in time. So Darn it. Um, the, the scarf and the floppy hat are going to have to do. That's that's pretty good. And there's some greenery behind you. If I squint, that could totally be a Christmas tree. It's fine. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can get some lights rigged up on it. And it, by the way, it's very possible that these layers will come off as the conversation goes. I just wanted mm. to get maximum impact right up front. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So look, let, let's talk about A Boy Called Christmas, which I thought was, I'll be honest, I thought it was going to be schmaltzy and too cute mm. because the poster is super duper cute. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was completely charmed. I just thought oh, it was great. absolutely lovely. Yeah. Thanks. So, so yeah. So where did, where did this start for you? Did you, did you read the book when it came out? Um, so I was living in the States uh, when the book came out and it wasn't super well known uh, in the couple of years after it came out. Matt Haig's brand and global awareness has grown sort of exponentially every year since I started working on this film. But so the film was sent to me by a London-based producer named Graham Broadbent. And he sent me the book along with an early first draft that uh, a writer named Al Parker had taken a crack at. And I um, got it about a week before Christmas. And I thought it was a very manipulative move by by Graham. So I put it aside um, and I thought to myself that if I read it in January and still found some way into it or some connection, that it would be something I would pursue. Um, uh, And, you know, I read a lot, so it's not 
there was never an expectation that this would be something that grabbed me, but I was sort of immediately hooked. And a few things did it for me. One is just Matt's a great writer. And the book had this Roald Dahl quality that is like candy for me. And I, I was so, I was, I was so pulled in to Nicholas's character and his journey. I also found some latent connections to Christmas that I had sort of suppressed in myself that we can get into later in the conversation that just uh, came kind of bubbling up to the surface. And I realized that not only was this a story that I was interested in, but one that I felt like I had to make. Mm -hmm. And so we started a conversation. I ended up coming here to London. He came to LA. We sort of met in the middle. Um, and at some point, it became clear that we were going to make this film. And then I moved here and uh, the the journey, you know, the adventure began. That's awesome. So, I mean, did you, I have to ask about, I haven't read the book, I'll be honest. I, I sort of mm. uh, skimmed through uh, synopses of it after watching mm -hmm. the film. But did, did you re add the sort of wraparound story, this kind of framing device with Maggie Smith kind of narrating the tale? Yeah, so that was that was actually one of the great contributions of Ol Parker. That was right. in the draft that uh, that Graham sent me. That was an innovation that they brought in to try to create a modern, you know, access point for audiences. Um, also, I think it really helped tone uh, because for a book, you're holding it's sort of like never-ending story you know you're you're holding the book itself which gives you the power as the as the reader um, but in in a film it's so helpful to have mm. a way to plunge in and out especially when you're trying to compress a very large story with a huge journey and and especially when you're trying to create as I was tone that at times doesn't hold back Mm -hmm. um, that gives the full weight of the human experience to a young audience. <laughs> and so to be able to modulate it by giving the point of view of another audience who's participating and listening to the story was extremely helpful. Mm. And it, it's a classic device. I mean, The Princess Bride is one of my all-time favorite films, obviously. And, 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 and it had kind of echoes of that because you do cut back when it gets a bit too scary or a bit too upsetting. And to poke holes at some of the, you know, at, at, <laughs> at, at some of the absurdity, which I think Princess Bride and the William mm -hmm. Goldman book and script are masterclasses in being able to have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. You go for full bore, you know, classic storytelling, but obviously a modern audience is, is sort of, we, we've been conditioned as as whether we like it or not, we're all postmodern in the way that we accept story. And so I think we're all conditioned to find the cliches or the or the obvious turns. And uh, and sometimes in spite of ourselves, we resist enjoying those turns. And, and so I think actually having a framing device can dismantle some of those barriers to entry. Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. I've, I've, I've actually seen, I haven't watched this with a, with a, an audience where I could talk to people. Obviously I've just seen it in the cinema, but I remember uh, watching the princess bride once with a boyfriend and he had objected on the basis of the title. And we literally got to the bit where he started saying, this is a girly film. This is, and they cut back to Fred Savage saying, is this a kissing book? And it, the timing, I've never seen anything like it. And I Perfect. felt like, I'm kind of looking forward to watching this like at home with with family and because I feel like there's going to be moments like that in this one as well. It's just that I can, I can tell you from experience without getting into spoiler territory, there are there are, there are two moments in particular, but one that I just saw with a very large audience with a lot of children in the theater. 
And the moment that I think things got right to the edge of what a young audience could handle mm -hmm. um, was uh, was so naturally answered by a cut to the room where the modern family is listening to the story. I was able to just take such a huge breath after it because I really felt like I was right at the precipice. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's 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 a it's a functional storytelling device. I don't think I'll use it again unless I'm making another boy called Christmas film because it's so specific. You have to be very aware of stories before and after or during that have used it because. It's like uh, handling a live grenade. Yeah. So I think you just have to be very careful. <laughs> Absolutely. So so what is it that you need to make a good Christmas movie? Because like I have to say, I, I'm going to like cards on the table mm. at this point. I think you've made one of the great Halloween movies as well. And oh, you've had Monsters. You. Monster thank House you. is just one of my all-time favorites. But but yeah, are, are there particular ingredients that you were like, this has to be in there. There has to be a moment where this happens. Yeah, I'm going to do a hat switch for this one. I'm going to become sure. a director to answer this one. <laughs> um, so um, I think that with Monster House, it was a it was a different way. And Monster House was a relationship to my sort of suburban upbringing. Like it was a, a response to a childhood that had some sort of suburban boredom in it. And the way to create fantasy and excitement is by imagining the fantastical in the neighbor's house. Um, with A Boy Called Christmas, I think you have to accept that Christmas is a loaded holiday for mm -hmm. a lot of people. It carries tremendous emotional weight. And I think sometimes it's it becomes easy fodder for storytelling where people try to come in and just push all the all the trigger buttons yep. to to create responses. And I think that there is actually an irresponsibility that can come with that. Um, so I think you have to be aware that you're entering into sort of emotionally fraught territory. I think you have to be able to, at least for myself, connect to at least a few of the currents to the holiday that made it seem like absolute magic mm -hmm. and, and that made it feel like it was a weird and special and sort of high intensity time in, in your life. So for instance, I'm talking about my own journey, but this is kind of the, my way in as an emotional, you know, road as a, as a storyteller. So I had a weird relationship to the holiday. I was born in, here in London, but we left when I was just about three and moved to Israel. Um, so I'm Jewish, but my parents brought Christmas with us for some reason to, <laughs> to Israel. And so I was this five-year-old looking out the window on Christmas Eve, waiting for Father Christmas. And I, and he would, he would, he would indeed make the extraordinary journey to, um, to bring me gifts. And I remember feeling so clearly that this was a special thing that I got because I was an English boy <laughs> and that none of my friends and neighbors had it. And so all of that is just like interesting or weird backstory. What it meant for me was that it gave me identity. And I, I I felt like okay I have my own sense of self that is connected directly to this to this holiday right oh so that um, ties into Nicholas amazingly totally and the concept of what is home and home being a feeling rather than a than a place 
Um, it's a question that I continue to ask myself, having recently relocated with my family from Los Angeles now back to London, coming full circle so that I may die now. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and so I think that the, there are big thematic questions that you have to answer. I, I, I'm giving a very broad answer. I'll, I'll get a bit more specific with some detail about how to approach a Christmas story. But I think my, my, my first and most genuine answer is to find the thematic hooks for myself as a storyteller that give me a way to connect to, to the experience of the audience watching this. And that is for a few reasons. One is because if I don't feel those things, I don't know how to tell the story in a way that is honest and meaningful. The other one is just because it's a lot of work and takes a lot of time to tell these stories. And if you don't have some real passion, then it's not a great way to pass two or three years. Yeah. Um, so um, the other things that for me were interesting was looking at Christmas stories that, um, and, and actually just fairy tales in general that were meaningful to me and, and thinking about what elements in those were exciting and what I felt like there was room for me to improve on. I felt like the, I was already in Europe, kind of. I don't think Brexit had fully happened at that point when we started. So yeah. I, was, I was so excited about embracing the true European concept of a fairy tale with this film, mm. going right to the roots of the kind of Brothers Grimm, classic middle Europe, big forests, big trees, and especially going to the Arctic Circle, to mm. Lapland, to find the true visual hook into this world. Those were things that, you know, Christmas always is a default. You see a candy cane with a sign that says North Pole on it. And it's like shorthand, but I've never actually, or I hadn't when I started this story, actually seen those places with my eyes mm. on a screen represented in story. And I became so curious about how you could ground a story like this in the environment where where it actually takes place. So really like a sense of actual cold and not just, you know, some kind of some mint. Yeah. I mean, we went so we went so far beyond cold that I, I think it needs its own word. In fact, I think that the Sami people do have some extra words for um for what we encountered. But um uh, when I first got off the plane, so we went to the very northern edge of Lapland and there's a place where Sweden, Norway, and Finland all meet. Um, and to get to the part in Finland where we were filming, you basically, you need to land in Norway in this town called Tromso. And I got off the plane there. It was end of December, the first time I went. Wow. So, um, so right in, you know, right in the, in the golden, golden zone of uh, Christmas. And I got off the plane. It was one of those cruelly one of those uh, stairs that they just push up to the side of the plane. So you walk out into the cold. And I took a breath and it was painful. My lungs hurt with the first breath. I felt like they were actually like ice crystals were forming on my lungs. And then you sort of, your body figures it out a little bit, but you, it, your, your, your head is screaming, get inside. And I never really fully recovered, although I, I learned that gear makes a big difference. I ended up getting Bluetooth controlled heated socks, which I'm not too ashamed to wow. admit. Um, and, um, and, seeing that stuff putting the cameras in it we froze one of the first cameras we brought up um, it was a there was a large format uh, re uh, film camera digital film camera that um, was still in the experimental phase and we put it up on the helicopter and it froze in the casing and we had to bring a second one up 
anyway, it had a sense of adventure for all of us. And I can't help but think that that adventure ended up finding its way onto the screen in one way or another. Hello, I'm Kate Lever, host of Who's a Good Dog, the podcast for anyone who's ever loved a dog. We're one of the other podcasts in the Stripped Media family. Each episode, I ask a brilliant person to introduce me to their dog and tell me how having a dog has changed their life. Listen to Who's a Good Dog wherever you get your podcasts. I wrote a book last year and I was I was researching early female filmmakers and one of them, Nell Shipman, went to the Arctic Circle to shoot and she described basically exactly what you've described but a hundred years ago. So I'm I'm fascinated that we haven't actually moved on that much. The cameras are still freezing, you know, you still feel like you're going to drop dead any moment. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I don't know if you covered the, the animators among the early female filmmakers, but as a weird side analog, Lotte Renninger, who mm -hmm. uh, was, was an incredible silhouette filmmaker, um, was a huge inspiration for me in, in school and in life and was one of the key touchstones for the shadow Lumi sequence at the beginning of the film. I was going to ask actually, yeah, because mm. um, I thought that was absolutely gorgeous. I, I wanted to ask one thing more though about the kind of the, the story and the, the idea of parents, because on one hand, you have the, the, the question of grief of, of a lost parent um, for both Nicholas and for the, the kids in, in the modern story, which has kind of been a bit of a trope in Disney movies. But I think mm -hmm. it's it's treated maybe a little bit more seriously here. And then on the other hand, you also have, without getting into spoilers, but you have parents sometimes failing their children, which I think is something we don't often see in stories. But it's something that's quite important that kids, you know, at some point, every, every kid is going to feel like their parents failed them. And and it's something that not a lot of people seem to deal with, maybe like Diana Wynne-Jones books. But apart from that, you don't get a lot. So I wanted to ask you just about some of those issues in the film. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll separate them slightly because I think that the, the second one is universal, the sense of the, the moment. And, it, and And I think failure can have lots of different faces to a child. Like it could just be being let down. It could feel, it could mean feeling disrespected. Um, and it can also mean on a fundamental level, a the moment where you realize that you're in charge of your own well-being as a young person. And every kid goes through their own journey with that. I mean, you know, without getting too specific, I do remember some moments from childhood where I remember feeling like, okay, this is going to be something that I'm going to have to take care of on my own, even as a, even as a young kid. And I have two great parents, but you still have those moments where you kind of have to self-actualize a little bit and you take your next step as a, as a person. Sometimes those are really healthy parts of growing up. Other times it can be a, a traumatic event that obviously um, some people have need a lot of support to, to get past. But before getting into the loss, I'll say that both of these themes of um, of the the kind of full dynamics of growing up are things that I always felt were missing from mainstream storytelling, except for Disney films, as you said, where it was done with with such um, persistence and so almost like a, it was reflexive that it was it was done. That in 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 some ways you began to expect it and it lost a little bit of its power by, you know, the 20th mom dying in the first two minutes of a, of a film. But I do remember as a young person 
feeling that when a movie showed me a young person going through actual hardship, that I felt seen and 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 I felt respected by the filmmakers. And when I felt that um, those moments were being held back, and sometimes I was seeing it in in you know sort of inappropriate ways. Like my dad took me to see the Tin Drum when I was way too young, and I just remember feeling like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm getting the parts of the human experience. I'm probably not ready for it yet, but I appreciate it. I'm here for it. And I took it all in. And But a lot of Hollywood films sort of took you to the edge and then pulled you right back. And, and I felt kind of pandered to, and, and sometimes that would be, that would keep me from fully embracing a film or feeling like I was really loving it. Um, anyway, that both sides of, of this coin, the, the, the grief and loss and, and this idea of being let down by parents, this is one of the, if there is a secret sauce to what Matt Haig is able to do in his books, is that he, having come sort of to the precipice himself, in, in literally and figuratively, he is uniquely able to share the, the full weight of the human experience in his stories and has the sort of bravery to do it in a story geared at young people and, and the fact that the story still connects and entertains and communicates is a gift that he is uniquely, uh, you know, in, in control of. Um, and I, I felt a big responsibility in um, adapting, especially those concepts and themes to the screen without diminishing any of their effect. And yeah. so the, the parental loss is not one that I have personal experience with, but, but I understand loss and I understand the feeling that a character can go through because I really by the point in the story where it happened I was so close to Nicholas already that it felt like a visceral um, reaction on my part and so again I just felt a responsibility as a storyteller to not cut the edges off for the audience yeah absolutely um, I've got so many more questions, but I want to ask very, very quickly just about your your cast, um, because you've got an amazing line of people like uh, Kristen Wiig and Michael Husman and Jim Broadbent and Sally Hawkins, Toby Jones. I mean, was it was it a case of like they loved the book? Was it a case of one person signs on and then they all want to work with that one person? How did you? How did you oh, that's that? a good question because it, it it felt like it was it sort of came together over time. I don't think that there was one person per se. I guess if I had gotten Maggie Smith at the beginning, it probably would have made the whole thing <laughs> yeah. a lot easier. But I think I think reaching her took a little bit longer. I mean, she was who I wanted from the beginning, and um, there was a connection through our producer Graham. Broadbent. He had produced the Best Exotic Marigold of Hotel course, yeah. films, and so was able to reach out to her and be like, "I think you should you should check this out." The casting was done here in London. A brilliant casting director who I'd never worked with before, named Susie Figgis, who was just fearless. It was just like you know, asked for my lists, and then was very adamant that there be no compromises made in 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 any of the roles. Um, it didn't happen automatically. It wasn't like everyone just sort of glommed on. It was it was work. But I know from experience that that's the place where you lay yourself down on the line to die. Like you don't make you don't make concessions in casting. There are a lot of things in the process that can be buffeted one way or another by circumstance or 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 just 
prevailing winds or whatever. But um, but with casting, you have to stick to your guns because there is nothing else that'll determine the success or failure of a film more than who the audience is is connecting to. Um, I remember that casting Sally Hawkins for me felt like a watershed moment in determining the tone of the film because I had made the decision to take what in the book was a smaller and less developed male character of Father Vodal into into Mother Vodal, mostly because I really wanted to work with Sally Hawkins, to be honest, <laughs> and it felt like the best the best role for her. But also because I was more interested in finding the gray zone in a in a in a you know heavy character than just having somebody who was stomping a staff around and twirling a mustache. Not that that was you know it's he's a he's a really fun character in the book, but there's a lot more room for character in the film uh, with 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 mother vodal so toby jones is a, is an actor i've worked with before he was really instrumental for tone actually i he he's sort of the mvp of the, him and him and jim broadbent both carry a lot of tonal weight in subtle ways that aren't quite obvious when you watch the film the first time but when you watch it as many times as i have you just see tiny mannerisms that are like little releases of air or increase of pressure and it's 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 just magic to see a very skilled actor being able to modulate tone within a line or a scene yeah awesome okay i've got two very quick questions to finish up that i'm asking everybody on this podcast first of all apart apart from your own film what's your go-to christmas movie so it's not one that's very well known in this country. I'm learning to my horror, but it's 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 a Bob Clark film called The Christmas Story from yes. 1983, and it's amazing. So you've seen it, yeah, um, like lamp, yeah, exactly, like <laughs> lamp. Um, and it's it's I love it for a lot of the reasons that I think it's connected with audiences for all these years. Is that it 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 gives you all the trappings of the holiday, but it dismantles them all at the same time. So I love the tone of that film. I really love Bob Clark's films. He also made Black Christmas, which is a great Christmas horror slasher film. Anyway, so um, I'm also going to sneak in Nightmare Before Christmas just because that one blew my mind when yeah. I saw it the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And then very finally, what are the what's the unique Christmas traditions in your house? Do you have a particular kind of food you've got to have every year? Is there a particular time you open your presents? Like how do you... What was in what is unusual for you? So I had a massive gap in my Christmas life from when I, from the age of seven when my best friend's mom sat me down and told me that my parents were lying to me, oh. uh, and I had to pretend like I knew what she was talking about and and uh, cauterized my passion for the holiday um, until the time that my wife and I had our daughter and she was old enough to crawl up the stairs to see the tree for the first time. And so I'm now sort of 13 years into my re um, reconnection to the holiday. And so I'm really, I'm still learning. I love it so much. And for me, it's still connected to my daughter's relationship to the morning of Christmas. Mm. And, and um, so it's, it's, I think it's quite normal. You can tell me, um, but we, have a Christmas meal on Christmas, not the night before, that a lot of the activity is about the sort of decorating on the days leading up. And then the, all of the excitement begins the morning of Christmas when my daughter comes to the tree and we all spend a few hours. <laughs> I think it's totally, <laughs> totally basic, but, um, but, but I wouldn't 
give it up for anything in the world because it's so wonderful. Yeah. And then we normally what we do is we'll have a really nice brunch and go for a super long walk with the dogs in in, in the country or you know, in the park. I, I love those walks. I, I feel like I, we have photos every year from these big sprawling walks on Christmas Day. Yeah, they're the best. That sounds perfect. Well, listen, thank you so much and congratulations on the film. And and you've got Ghostbusters Afterlife like this year it's as well. A, oh my God. It's been a, been a pretty, pretty hectic couple of weeks, but um, I'm uh, really glad that, you know, I mean, especially I know that you're an authority on the subject and I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that you checked the film out and connected with it. Thank you. No, it's really lovely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Oh, take care. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.